by his black neighbors for his skin color. And yet, the heroes of this racially abused white were black rappers. And now, he walks among them, wildest of them all, like some twisted photo-negative of a civil rights dream. American politicians and pressure groups shake nervous fingers at his unnatural preeminence. But Eminem's music skips around its earnest accusers, because he is more sophisticated than them, in a way as important as his racial transgressions. As a child fan of gangster rap's fantasies, who grew up in the real, if for him, wrong ghetto, he understands perfectly the difference between exaggerated art and grim reality. This has freed him to explore extreme emotional places that his country— so much happier censoring rappers than addressing real racially divided ghettos, poverty, and gunplay, would rather think didn't exist. All these things run through my mind as I enter the evening news arena minutes before this lightning rod figure takes the stage. The protesters have melted away long ago. Only the 28-year-old Marshall Mathers himself is left to face the expectations of 16,000 young fans and the fascination of the rest of Britain, waiting to hear what the monster really looked like and the awful things he did. But the man I watch for the next 90 minutes is the very opposite of a monster. Instead, when the horror movie hockey mask in which he enters is removed, his charisma fades like the Wizard of Oz. He looks short and slight, gym work not obscuring the vulnerable, pasty playground victim he once was. An expensive set and cartoon intermission, and the sharing of rapping duties with his band of adolescent Detroit friends, D-12, all seem designed to distract attention from the most infamous, supposedly fearless pop star in the world. He doesn't look likely to pistol-whip anyone, or to rape his mother. Instead, he concentrates on gently talking to the mostly teen or under crowd, making sure these children are in on the joke, trusting them not to do as his lyrics suggest. He ludicrously makes them all claim they're drug addicts to bring these people who like him closer and push his credulous adult critics away. The great misogynist even brings a teenage girl fan on stage and treats her with such deference she could be his own daughter. He seems desperate to destroy the hysteria he's provoked, to return to being an entertainer. In the flesh, his extremist art and timid reality seem separated by chasms. His rage only resurfaces at the end, when rounding on his critics, he barks the chorus of another of his infamous hits, I am whatever you say I am. In truth, He's so much more, and less. The real story of who he is begins 28 years before and 4,000 miles away. It takes us back to the eerie industrial ruins of Detroit, USA. Chapter 1. Ground Zero Flashback In Detroit, you can never go back far enough. People who talk glibly of the death of the American dream do so only because they've never been to this place, 
and seeing the corroded, crudely hacked-up corpse of a century of false hopes for themselves. Read the history books before you arrive, and you realize the city in which Eminem had to make his way is the end of every kind of American line. Its rise was swift and promising enough. At the 19th century's start, it was little more than a break in the Midwestern wilderness, a settlement known only to trappers from the French Canada it nearly touched. Detroit was French for the Straits, the narrow riverway down which they rode as they slipped between nations. But by 1805, the state of Michigan's first governor, Judge Augustus Woodward, was already planning to transform it into the Paris of the West, a perfect new city of rationally designed parks and boulevards. This was the first dream Detroit.